Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on our program, Vaccine Showdown. I think uh, uh, all Canadians, uh, including me, are frustrated uh, to see vaccines in uh, freezers and not in people's arms. We need, uh, we need more vaccines. We're, we're going to run out. Are the provinces rolling out the vaccines too slowly or is the federal government too slow at getting the provinces the vaccines? Why is the whole process taking so long? We'll put those questions to the Intergovernmental Affairs Minister, Dominic LeBlanc. Then, prison vaccinations? The advisory committee was to prioritize um, our, our detention, our, our custodial institutions for both inmates and for those workers that were working there. 600 federal inmates could soon get vaccinated against COVID-19. Should that program be stopped as Aaron O'Toole wants? We'll be joined by the Conservative public safety critic Shannon Stubbs. Then we'll get a response from the Minister of Public Safety, Bill Blair. Plus, COVID curfew. The situation in our hospitals is critical. There are still too many visits in homes. That's why I'm announcing there'll be a curfew from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. during four weeks. So after 8 p.m., we won't be allowed to go out in streets except for work. Quebec's strict COVID curfew went into effect last night. Will it flatten the curve or cause long-term damage to businesses? We debate that with the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Dan Kelly, and Quebec MNA Christopher Ski. Then, American insurrection. The president has committed an unspeakable assault on our nation and our people. I join the Senate Democratic leader in calling on the vice president to remove this president by immediately invoking the 25th Amendment. Will Donald Trump be removed from office before the inauguration? How much damage did the deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol do to America? And will Canada designate some groups terrorist organizations? We'll put those questions to Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. We have seen some challenges uh, that uh, I think we're all impatient about in terms of getting those vaccines into arms, but we are confident and very hopeful that <clears throat> over the coming weeks, uh, the uh, challenges will be overcome. We're putting more vaccines in arms per day than are flowing into the province of Ontario. We've just really started this motor of the vaccination uh, infrastructure in Ontario. We've only got a tiny part of it running, and yet already we are outrunning the flow of vaccines. So the Prime Minister said he was frustrated to see vaccines in freezers, not in people's arms. Uh, provinces like Ontario pushed back, Doug Ford saying no. Ontario's going to run out of vaccines before uh, we can get more. Retired General Rick Hillier, who's in charge of the Ontario rollout, told me that the Prime Minister was flat out wrong and he demanded more vaccines. What is the holdup as the provinces blame the federal government and the federal government seems to be frustrated with the provinces? The bottom line is, well, Canada's ordered more vaccines per capita than any country. We're still slower than many countries in getting them in people's arms. For example, the United Kingdom has already vaccinated more than a million and a half people. That's 1.9% of their population. Canada's done under 0.5%. Let's find out what the holdup's all about with the Intergovernmental Affairs Minister, Dominic LeBlanc. Good to have you back on the program, sir. Look. The premiers keep saying that the prime minister is wrong, that, that uh, in fact, they're running out. They're not sitting in freezers. Are vaccines sitting in freezers instead of getting into people's arms? 
Uh, Evan, we're very confident, and the First Minister's discussion on Thursday evening was very constructive uh, and very cordial on the issue of working together around vaccine distribution. We're confident uh, that provinces have effectively scaled up uh, the vaccination programs. If there are doses in the freezers, in many cases, those are the doses that they're holding back to administer in terms of a second a second shot, a second dose, as per uh, as per the instructions from the companies. We're very confident that this will be a successful effort. Uh, the provinces have very clear lines of sight on the arrival of vaccines over the next numbers of weeks. I know now it sounds like you're back to the kumbaya, but that, that wasn't what it was a couple of days ago, as you know. The premiers are actually saying, and to this day, that they have ramped up. There was a slow start. Some provinces like Ontario actually took a break and other provinces took a break over the Christmas holidays for that. But they're saying now we've ramped up so much that we are going to run out of doses and it's the federal responsibility. It's the federal supply that is too slow and too few doses. Is that true? Our province is going to run out. Well, Evan, they're not going to run out in the sense they know exactly how many they're going to have in a particular week. So as they effectively, as you said, ramp up their immunization programs, and we're very encouraged and very positive about the province's ability to effectively deploy these vaccines into people's arms. That's obviously what Canadians expect. So the initial challenges appear to have largely been resolved. That's great news. The good news is if they've ramped up their ability to deploy these vaccines, so too will the arrival of those vaccines in Canada be ramped up. Well, so over the, next, over the next number of weeks, hundreds of thousands of additional doses are going to arrive, and it's going to grow and increase as we go into February, March, and into the spring. I want to focus in on the paid, the, the premium. We don't know how much. We've never seen the contracts. Other countries have shown the contracts. Canada has never shown the contracts we've signed for this. Uh, the U.S. has, the U.K. has, Australia has. I don't know why we haven't. We don't know how much we've paid per dose. Reports are saying Israel paid a premium of up to $30 a dose. Let me ask you, because you and I both know that Pfizer says a tiered price formula will determine volume and delivery dates. Did we pay the maximum price for the fastest vol uh, delivery and the maximum volume? Did we pay the, the highest price to get this stuff fastest? Evan, we have paid consistently with all seven, all seven different uh, pharmaceutical companies the price necessary to get early and sufficient doses to vaccinate Canadians in a, in a rigorous and an effective way. So uh, my colleague, the Minister of Procurement, has said repeatedly that our procurement efforts have been amongst the most successful in the world. Uh, and I think, Evan, you'll see, as I said, in coming weeks, a very considerable increase uh, in the number of Canadians vaccinated. Uh, and we're going to continue to put maximum pressure on those companies and to do everything that we possibly can right. as a national government to get as many of those vaccines as quickly as possible but, but the numbers, into Canada and then of course and then of course distributed to provinces. But the bottom line is Canada is falling back in terms of the early supply. I just these are the facts. 
Uh, the Prime Minister said we're going to have about 1.3 to 1, 1.3 million doses by the end uh, of the month, right? Uh, that will put us, what, way behind other countries. That, I think that makes Canada fall out of the top 10 countries right now. That means the federal supply is the, is the key factor here. Has the government offered to pay even more to Pfizer, to Moderna, to any of these to, to get more vaccines more quickly so we can even come close to where the UK is or the United States is or other countries? Evan, so as we've, as we've said before, you're comparing Canada to countries that have massive domestic biomanufacturing capacity, where in many cases these vaccines are made on massive scales in their own jurisdictions. So that's a different circumstance. Than well, not Israel. To be, fair, to be fair on, on Israel, to be fair on Israel, Israel but, doesn't have a domestic supply, and they actually bought Pfizer. They made their order on the Pfizer vaccine after Canada, and yet they've got more doses. I can't square that circle. Can you? Yeah, what I can say, Evan, is that we're in constant discussions, daily in many cases, with senior executives of both Pfizer and Moderna, but some of the other companies that we hope receive Health Canada approval soon, uh, so that we can, we can accelerate, we can bring forward the number of doses that we've contractually obtained for Canadians, so that effort is ongoing. We haven't stopped working and won't stop working uh, to do everything necessary to accelerate the arrival of those doses. All right, I got to leave it there, Minister Dominic Albon. Always good to have you on the program in, in a critical time. But coming up next, the Prime Minister blames Donald Trump for inciting an assault, that assault on Capitol Hill. Will this change U.S.-Canadian relations? What other consequences does it have? And if Canada is now standing up for democracy, will it harden its position on China? The Foreign Affairs Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. What we witnessed was an assault on democracy by violent rioters incited by the current president and other politicians. As shocking, deeply disturbing, and frankly, saddening as that event remains, we've also seen this week that democracy is resilient in America, our closest ally and neighbor. So Prime Minister Justin Trudeau squarely blamed the U.S. President Donald Trump and other politicians for inciting the assault on Capitol Hill. Should the Prime Minister have spoken out earlier about Donald Trump? And will the Prime Minister now designate some of the groups involved, like the Proud Boys, a terror group, as Jagmeet Singh has asked? Talk about that and lots of other issues. We're joined now by Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne. Uh, good to see you, sir, and thanks for, for being on the program. It was an astonishing week to watch the assault on Capitol Hill. Uh, can you just, your view on this, was Donald Trump directly responsible for inciting that violence? I must say when I saw the images uh, coming from Washington earlier this week, I think I feel like all Canadians, I was really sad. Uh, you know, the United States is our closest allies and when you see an assault on, on the seat of one of the oldest democracy in the world, um, I think there's a lot of people uh, today uh, in Washington, uh, across the United States, who must be doing a bit of soul searching. Uh, fortunately, on one end, we saw that democracy is always fragile in a way, but on the other end, that the institutions are very resilient. President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris were certified, yeah. and that the peaceful transition of power will continue 
and that's what we expected and and certainly um, you know, we're looking forward to work with the new administration. Joe Biden becomes president on, on January 20th. He has a Buy American policy. Um, he intends to revoke permits for the Keystone XL pipeline from Alberta. That will be a blow to the energy sector there. Shovels are in the ground. Let me just ask you specifically, what will your government do to protect that pipeline? Well, first of all, when you say uh, buy America, I'd like us to believe in, in buy North America, because when you have supply chains which are so integrated, I think we'll, we'll certainly make the case that, that millions of jobs on both sides depends on trade uh, um, going across the border, as it has always been. Two-thirds of the United States, of the states of the United States, have Canada as a primary market. So it's in our best interest. We always have to remind our friends down in the United States that the decision on one side of the border will have an impact on both. And as I see global supply chain going from global to regional, from efficiency to resiliency, I think there's a great opportunity. There's millions of jobs that depend on trade with Canada. And certainly we're going to push for that. I get your philosophy. His philosophy is to kill the Keystone XL pipeline. What are you going to do to try to save it? On Keystone XL, I think we'll make the case that Canada is the most trusted energy supplier to the United States, has been for uh, almost a century. Uh, and therefore, that uh, a country that the United States should see Canada, a country which has a, uh, a price on carbon, uh, which has committed to the net zero emission by 2050, um, and that, that they should be working with Canada when it comes to energy. I want to talk about the other foreign policy challenge for you, which will be China. We've just seen an assault on democracy in the United States. You've called the mass arrest of opposition politicians and activists in Hong Kong an assault on democracy there. Now, the Conservatives have said your government's got to do a lot more against China. You've got to sanction Chinese officials or do something. I just want to remind Canadians. Last week, your own public safety minister, Bill Blair, sent out a letter to MPs warning about China's extensive interference here in Canada, silencing critics, stealing technology. Operation Fox Hunt is actually the name of it. Yet your government still, years later, will not ban Huawei from Canada's 5G network. And I know the prime minister and you say you're awaiting the security and intelligence services advice, but every other country in our five eyes has banned it and we're years behind. If, if China is a significant threat, those are Bill Blair's words, what are you guys waiting for? We're going to follow the advice of, of, of our security and intelligence services. National security comes first. Uh, when you take decisions as profound as 5G, uh, you're talking about the Internet of Things, something that will be present everywhere. You want to make sure you do the right decision, and we're not going to be bound by some artificial deadlines that, but that some no opposition but sure, members sure, would like I, to propose. I, I, I we're going to work but, but with our agency, and we're going to put British. national security first. But you're years behind the, the Brits, the Americans, the Australians. Yeah, but, uh, and, and again, uh, I would if, say, if the uh, public safety minister calls China a, a, a serious threat, if they're stealing technology, You've had years to investigate this. Ch China's cracking down in Hong Kong. China's cracking down on the Uyghurs. What will it take for Canada to take a tougher stance on China if, if you won't do anything on Huawei? Well, listen, I'll take objection to that, Evan. Canada has taken a tough stance on China. Just ask any partner in the world. I mean, the, we have been firm and smart at every step of the way. And you can ask our partners. Canada stood up when it came to Hong Kong. Canada stood up when it comes to Xinjiang. 
Canada stood up with our allies. I mean, this year we've probably been with our allies, whether it's the Five Eyes or the G7, at the center of all discussions, Evan. Your closest allies in security, your Five Eyes partners have all banned Huawei, you're not. So we're out of step on that in our partners. They're there are a lot, the conservatives say, that there should be sanctions against Chinese officials like Magnitsky sanctions on Hong Kong. We have not done that. We have not banned Huawei. You, sir, even though a parliamentary committee has called the treatment of the Uyghurs in China a genocide, you have not. So maybe I'll ask you that. Is the treatment of the Muslim minorities in northwestern China a genocide? Listen, what I said to you, Evan, is that every step of the way we've been working with, with our international partners. When it comes to sanctions, I mean, Canadians were watching understand if you want to have impact, you have to act with the international community. You have to act with your partners. When it comes to Xinjiang, we've been there. We were part of the 38 countries who called that. I spoke to the UN High Representative for Human Rights to say you need to get access, unfettered access, to Xinjiang in order to report to the world. I spoke to her for an hour and a half. I've spoke to my colleagues around the world to say we need to act together on these issues because you don't deal with these issues one by one. Right. You deal with it but, as the international community, and that's what we've been doing. It's been well over two years now since they arbitrarily arrested Michael Korvig and Michael Spavor. And again, you know, whatever you've done, or the, it, nothing's worked there. So what is the plan to try to get them out? Because it seems that uh, w whatever's happened is not working. So uh, what is the plan to get them out? And if they're not going to be released, uh, what action will you take? Will you put sanctions on Chinese officials? Listen, uh, first of all, this is a tragedy. Two years have been stolen from Michael Kovring and Michael Spever. Two years have been stolen from their families. Two years have been stolen from their loved ones. So what we've achieved in 2020, I would say, is that the world doesn't see Michael Kovring and Michael Spavor anymore as two Canadians. They see them as two citizens of a liberal democracy. We have been able to team up with our allies and partners around the world to make sure that we send a very strong and clear message to China that coercive diplomacy has no place. All right, I got to leave it there. Foreign Affairs Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne, always a pleasure to have you on the program. But coming up on our program, will Donald Trump be forced out of the office after the incidents, the assault on Capitol Hill? The Democrats are pushing hard. Will Republicans support them? We'll ask the Lincoln Project co-founder Rick Wilson, the former U.S. ambassador to Canada. Bruce Heyman next. Stay right here with Question Period. This is not dissent. It's disorder. It's chaos. It borders on sedition, and it must end now. Insurrection, sedition, those are the words President-elect Joe Biden used to describe the deadly assault on Capitol Hill on January 6th, an assault incited by President Donald Trump and his baseless allegations of election fraud. The attack has left five people dead, including a police officer. It was tragic. It was shocking. But as I said on that very day, it was not surprising. When Donald Trump and his supporters like Rudy Giuliani were calling on people to fight back against the criminals who stole the election, or in Rudy Giuliani's case on that very day, to have trial by combat, no one should be surprised, an insurrection ensued. And even as the president and his enablers, like Republican Senator Ted Cruz, who on that very day continued to try to overturn the election, now try to distance themselves from the violence, does it ring hollow? They can't distance themselves from the fruit of the very poison tree they planted and nurtured for so long. So now what? 
House Democrats are going to try to move to impeach Donald Trump. Can they succeed? The use of Article 25 to remove him will probably not happen as the Vice President, uh, Mike Pence, will not agree to it. So will Republicans push the President to resign? And where does the Republican Party go from here as it begins to contemplate a post-Trump era and a post-insurrection reset? To talk about all that, we're joined by Rick Wilson. He's a Republican strategist and a co-founder of the Lincoln Project, which has stood against Donald Trump. Bruce Heyman is the former U.S. ambassador to Canada. Robert Moore is a correspondent with Britain's ITV News. He reported from within the Capitol building, literally as the mob broke into that building. It was riveting historic footage. And Annie Bergeron Oliver, of course, is our CTV News correspondent, currently based in Washington, D.C. Good morning to everyone. And I'll start with Ambassador Heyman. Uh, you've talked a lot about what happened in the past week. Will Democrats now try to move to uh, impeach Donald Trump on, before January 20th? Evan, I think that's going to happen very quickly. It could happen uh, very early in this week. And I do believe a vote will take place in the House of Representatives, and it should. Um, I think it's going to be a time of accountability for a lot of Republicans to see where they're going to land on this, because that vote will stick with them for the rest of their lives. And even though there's just a few days left here in this administration, I think it's important to call this vote, to hold him accountable for the insurrection that he perpetrated on the Capitol. He has blood on his hands, he has a stain on the country, and he needs to be held accountable. Rick Wilson, um, what will Republicans do? Many of them are, some are resigning, some are trying to distance themselves. Will, will some Republicans, either in the Senate or the Congress, by the way, many in the Congress, well over about 120, still voted to overturn that election on that very day. What will mm -hmm. they do now? Well, there are gonna be two groups of Republicans. The ones who go down in history, with a black mark next to their name forever, and the ones who, even after four years of sycophancy to Donald Trump, make a final decision to stand up for once and say, I can't be with this guy. I can't do this. I have to speak out. I have to vote to impeach. They should impeach him tomorrow. It should be done immediately. Um, and you should put these Republicans on notice that this vote is coming. You can't avoid it. You can't avoid the, the, the choice that Donald Trump has left you stuck with. He has incited a seditious insurrection in our own country in an attempt to overthrow a free and fair election. It is an outrage of the highest order. And if these Republicans don't believe that people will remember who, and who they are and what they did at this moment, they are sadly mistaken. I want to go to Robert Moore, um, and I want to go back to that moment so people remember it, because the footage you had was riveting, and we're going to show it now. You were literally there as people broke into the Capitol building, going through the door, smashing the windows. We know now many of them are white supremacists. Uh, there was a Confederate flag was waved, QAnon conspiracy theorists. Can you describe what it was like as they broke in, who you saw, and what you saw? Yeah, we had a very rare, perhaps a unique vantage point because we were standing with a crowd of pro-Trump supporters just to one side of the inauguration platform and they suddenly discovered that there was a way up into Congress itself. They went up a, a set of marbled steps, found themselves in a terrace and then saw that there was a door and a window that was unsecured. So they broke through that window, wrenched off the door and suddenly and improbably found themselves in the halls of Congress itself. And so we went with them, filming as we went, speaking to them, you know, in, in, in actual time, in real time. And it was extraordinary in this sense that they were echoing the very conspiracy theories that we've heard 
come from the White House and come from other uh, online conspiratorial platforms, uh, they felt that they were there to stop the steal, as they were shouting. They felt the election had been stolen and that there was a kind of insurrectionary whiff in the air, if you like, not just the tear gas that we'd had outside, but there was more a kind of a sense of, of almost revolution. And that's why we followed them, tracked them all the way to Nancy Pelosi's office and saw them uh, physically ransack that, tear down her nameplate. It was very striking, not only how they felt that this was a sort of almost a real-time insurrection, but also how they were embracing fully the conspiracy theories. Annie, you also covered it there. Where was security? This is one of the greatest security lapses anybody's ever seen. You know there is, we've all seen video of, of some of the, the actual guards there letting people in. Uh, one of them at least posed for a selfie with one of the insurrectionists. Uh, Annie, what has been the consequence of, and what happened to security there? Well, that's the big question. You saw that police were clearly outnumbered. They were clearly well, overwhelmed very quickly. And you have officials who are coming out saying they asked for the National Guard. You know, the, the governor of Maryland saying he asked for 90 minutes to get his National Guard in. He was ready and waiting, but his requests were delayed and denied. You know, the mayor of D.C. says the exact same thing. She doesn't know what happened. She tried to get some more National Guard there, but for whatever reason, that request did not go through. And the thing we have to remember is that this was not something that happened out of nowhere. This protest was planned. They knew about it. It was set up just on the ellipses, just outside the White House. This was a group of people that Donald Trump wanted to talk about. Secret Service knew. Donald Trump spoke about it. You know, so these people were here. Mm. They had advanced planning. And anybody who was online also saw the chatters weeks in advance. You know, those far-right Republicans were talking about this event, talking about how to get to the Capitol. They were planning their trip, planning how to get each other there so that they could bring weapons if they wanted to from their places to D.C. So, you know, if people who follow the far-right Republicans online could see it, you have to guess that others knew as well law enforcement. So that's the big question. There will be investigations. What happened? How did this go so wrong so fast? And what a stark contrast to the security around the Black Lives Matter protests, which had that just unbelievably heavy, heavy presence. Uh, Bruce Heyman, mm -hmm. let me go back to you, Ambassador. There is now word that the president is investigating whether to pardon himself before charges can possibly be laid, if they will, I'm not sure. Can he do that? Look, he can try to do anything. We've seen him go to any level that nobody has ever gone before. But look, here's the deal, Evan. This man is going to go and leave in disgrace. He is going to go to Mar-a-Lago and the community doesn't want him to live there and they're going to kick him out. He is going to have the banks coming after him for money that's owed. He's going to have the district attorney of New York going after he and his family for lies and crimes committed. He is going to have lawsuits all over the place. He is going to be a pariah among Republicans because they're not going to want to be near him. So whether or not he is pardoned for criminal offenses that he committed while being president, and he can exempt himself from the federal crimes that he clearly did, that I think that he's going to have so much heat on him hmm. that it doesn't really matter. I think he's in a he's in a really tough way right now. Rick Wilson, I'm intrigued. First of all, he may try to pardon himself. I'm not sure. But, you know, this party has been the party of Trump for a long time. That's why you as a Republican left that. 
uh, Rick Wilson. So I'm just trying, what do you think the future for Donald Trump? And by the way, his daughter Ivanka, Don Jr., they are there. They say they still have tens of millions of supporters. Not, they say, not the folks that stormed Capitol Hill, but the others. What happens to the Trump family and their role in the Republican Party going forward? I think Bruce is exactly right. Donald Trump is in for a world of hurt. He is going to be in court for the rest of his life. He will not have a single day of rest uh, from from the possibility of prosecutions, uh, both for his role, uh, his acts as president, his acts before that. He will never have an easy moment. Now, I do think the children of Donald Trump are all politically ambitious. They have a giant mailing list. It's incredibly politically effective. Ivanka Trump is planning to run for U.S. Senate against Marco Rubio in Florida in 2022. Um, the Don Jr. wants to run for office, whether for president or something else. They're all ambitious. They've got a big cohort. And in a Republican primary, that would still be a powerful name to have on your side. But Donald Trump himself is going to absolutely um, be in a, his, his, his future is misery uh, and in every possible dimension. And, you know, you hate to see it. Finally, Robert, I'll just leave this with you. The, the rest of the world was reacting to this with horror as uh, the U.S. Capitol, that you, and f much of it from your own footage. Uh, what has been the international reaction, and has there been damage to the U.S. reputation? I think that's right. I mean, to use that great marketing term, there is a deep uh, kind of reputational damage to the American brand in this. So many people around the world always look to the United States, not as the perfect democracy, but as a, a stable democracy. And I think the, the images and the, the footage that we filmed of that mob entering uh, uh, Capitol Hill there really has shaken that. They recognize that actually democracy is a great deal more fragile than perhaps we think, particularly if America's political divisions are so amplified by the echo chamber in which uh, the people that we saw operate in. It's certainly true that they can put up a seven-foot fence around uh, the Capitol Hill complex and they can try and secure the inauguration. But nevertheless, the conspiracy th theories that we heard, the ones that are out there in across America, they cannot be fenced off. And this is a problem that will go long beyond uh, Joe Biden's inauguration at noon on January the 20th. Absolutely. Uh, I got to leave it there, but you're absolutely right. This story is far from over. Uh, Ambassador Bruce Heyman, Rick Wilson from the Lincoln Project, Robert Moore from ITV News, and of course our very own CTV's Eddie Bergeron Oliver. Great to have the four of you here this morning. Thank you so much. All right, when we come back, prison vaccination. Should a program to vaccinate 600 prisoners in federal jails be stopped like conservatives want? Who should get the jab first? We'll debate that next when the public safety minister Bill Blair and the conservative public safety critic Shannon Stubbs join us. Stay right here with Question Period. Well, I just, I, I still can't believe it's, it's going to happen. So I encourage the federal government, uh, I encourage the prime minister, stop it. It is not good, not good at all to give uh, uh, the most dangerous criminals in our country uh, vaccines over the most vulnerable people out there, especially going by their guidelines too. So that's Ontario Premier Doug Ford joining Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole and pushing back against a federal program that started to vaccinate 600 prisoners in federal prisons. Aaron O'Toole had tweeted out not one criminal should be vaccinated ahead of any vulnerable Canadian or frontline health worker. Now, the program was started by Correctional Services Canada 
The aim is to vaccinate 600 elderly and medically vulnerable prisoners, they say. Should prisoners be the, at the back of the vaccine line, as the Conservatives say, or is this just part of health guidelines to protect people in congregate settings? Let's find out. For the first perspective, we're joined now by the Conservative critic for public safety, uh, Shannon Stubbs. Good to see you, Shannon Stubbs, and, and I guess Happy New Year, even though things aren't so happy right now. Prisoners are high-risk settings, as you know, for COVID transmission. Is committing a crime grounds for, for being booted to the back of the line for COVID vaccinations? Here's the reality. Because of the Liberals' delays and failure to secure a sufficient supply of vaccine for all Canadians. And you can see this, you know, Israel is vaccinating their population 10 times faster uh, than Canadians are receiving them. The U.S. is on track to vaccinate uh, the equivalent of the Canadian population before most uh, populations will receive them. The top four largest provinces have either gone through half or well over half um, of their vaccine allotments for their citizens. So the fact is that these prioritization, these choices must be made. These are the political and public policy decisions that have to be made. Now, the National Advisory Expert Council told the Liberals that uh, prisons and penitentiaries should be in the second phase. So what we are saying is that in this reality of scarce and limited supply, the choices that have to be made must be that the government's top priority is that vulnerable Canadians, uh, vulnerable, vulnerable sen seniors and staff in long-term care facilities and in healthcare facilities uh, must be prioritized. The pushback here is that frontline workers and healthcare workers are being prioritized because their doses for them apparently have all been allocated from a different source. So by the way, same for, for long-term care homes. And according to data from Correctional Services Canada, and I've got it here, federal prisons uh, are getting infected at five times the rate of other Canadians. So, so this is 600 uh, they, people. This is supposed to be the pilot project when they get to the next phase, phase two. So what, what is wrong with protecting people who are getting infected at a five times higher rate than the rest of Canadians? Well, what I hear from Canadians is part of the problem is this, 80% um, of deaths from COVID have been in long-term care facilities. There are, uh, have been 10,000 deaths and 40,000 individual cases in long-term care facilities. There have been outbreaks in prisons. They're relatively isolated. There's been approximately 1,200 individual cases and three or four deaths. So uh, that's why the importance of the reality of the scarce and limited supply is um, actually a very relevant fact. And But here's what I would say. <clears throat> the expert uh, National Advisory Council told the Liberals that penitentiaries and prisons should be in the second phase. Well, the Liberals have made a decision to prioritize uh, this vaccination program in prisons starting on Friday. But here is the reality. None of the frontline prison staff or corrections officers working in those same facilities are receiving vaccinations at the same time. Right, but, but I, and I appreciate, sense. listen. If, if the Liberals are saying these are high-risk areas, then surely the vulnerable frontline staff and correctional officers, who, by the way, have been going to work every day to do these jobs in these facilities and then going home and self-isolating um, from their own families. All right, I kind of leave it there. We're going to try to get some answers from the Public Safety Minister, Bill Blair, coming up next. Shannon Stubbs, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate the time. All right, let's bring in the government's response. Joining me now is the uh, Minister of Public Safety, Bill Blair. Good to have you, Minister, back on the program. 
the conservatives oppose this, as you just heard. They say prisoners should not be part of phase one. They should be part of phase two, not before frontline workers or correctional officers. Uh, can you explain how this program rolled out? This is really about following the advice of the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, the advice of our public health agency. This is These are decisions that are being made by medical professionals. There is a very small cohort of people in our federal institutions who are elderly, who have pre-existing health conditions, who in any other circumstances, if they weren't incarcerated, would have been eligible for the first rollout taking place in the provinces. And and the advice that we have received is that that those individuals who are in a congregate living setting who are particularly vulnerable because of their age and their, their existing health condition, and that they should be prioritized. And, and we're talking about a very small cohort of the inmate population, less than 5%. Right. It's a handful of people. The, the National Advisory Committee also indicated to us that they prioritized the inmates and in our federal institutions and correction officers for the second phase. I should just tell people just on a fact the Correctional Services Canada is obliged under the Correction and Conditions Release Act to give health care to federal inmates. So they are actually legally obliged to do that. Just two, a couple real quick points. Uh, some folks will say, wait a second, we are making choices because of the scarcity of the vaccine. Will 600 uh, or 1,200 doses for 600 people going to inmates mean that a frontline healthcare worker won't get a vaccine? Will it mean, as some members of the Correctional Officers Union say, we should get them before the prisoners? What's your response to that? Yeah, listen, I understand completely why people are worried about their parents and their grandparents, and, and they want the, the elderly and the infirm to get first priority for those vaccines. I agree with that. And by the way, that's exactly the advice that we're following, even in our prison system. I understand the advocacy of the, the, the correction officers union. Of course, they want their people at the front of the line. I've got good news for them. They are at the front of the line in the second phase, and we understand the importance of ensuring that they're protected with the vaccine as well. Minister, you saw the events unfold in the United States, uh, the assault, call it an insurrection, on, on Capitol Hill. Um, one of the groups involved are the Proud Boys, co-founded by a Canadian. Uh, they were actively involved. Jagmeet Singh wants Canada to designate the Proud Boys as a terror group. Will you do that in the wake of these events? We're very mindful of ideologically motivated violent extremists, including groups like the Proud Boys. They're white supremacists, anti-Semitics, Islamophobic, misogynist groups. Um, they're all hateful. They're all dangerous. Um, our national security officials are, are very mindful of these individuals. They're gathering intelligence. They bring that intelligence before, before me, and I bring it before cabinet. Was that an act of domestic terror, in your view? We witnessed this week an assault on one of the most important democratic institutions in the world, not just in the United States, and, and, and clearly motivated by extremism and hatred um, and, 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 and I think that meets all of the criteria for, for terrorism. I, I think uh, everyone needs to reflect on, on, on how their language can encourage and incite um, that type of activity. But, but, but I, I, I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned. You know, the, the, the security and intelligence failures that, that took place at the Capitol uh, earlier this week, I think there's lessons to be learned in every place, including in Canada, and, and we're doing that work and reflecting on, on those lessons um, to make sure that we deal appropriately with that type of hatred in our society and that we take the steps necessary to protect our most important democratic institutions. Got to leave it there. Bill Blair, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it, Minister. Thank you very much. All right, when we come back, Quebec's COVID curfew. The strictest COVID rules in Canada began at midnight last night. Will it work or will it 
crush business? Is it the right thing to do? We debate that next with Quebec government member Christopher Skeet and Dan Kelly, the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Stay right here with Question Period. We all need to stay home as much as possible for the next four weeks. Police, police officers will be there to make sure everybody respects the rules. We see the light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccine, but we need to reduce the contagion right now, and I'm counting on you all. Shock therapy, that's how the Quebec Premier described the strict COVID curfew that went into effect last night. Anyone who breaks the police enforced curfew could face a fine of up to $6,000. Police discretion will be key. Will this curfew actually work or will it have a crushing impact on business and mental health? And will other provinces like Ontario, that province facing record rising numbers of COVID, follow suit? Let's bring in the scrum to find out. Joyce Napier is CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief. Our special guests for this round are the CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses, Dan Kelly, and the Quebec Parliamentary Secretary to the Premier, the uh, MNA, Christopher Skeet. Uh, good to have all of you on the program. And Mr. Skeet, I've got to start with you. Why did the Quebec government decide it was necessary to impose this curfew? And how is it going to be enforced? It seemed really strict. Yeah, I mean, listen, we have uh, hospitals uh, that are, you know, on the border of being uh, overrun. So the idea here is we've got to stem the tide. And uh, the best way to do that, unfortunately, is a curfew. Uh, we were just there. And unfortunately, this is something that happened right after the holiday season. We saw a spike and it's something that we had we had to take action. So uh, we're optimistic that people are going to listen to the curfew. So I'm, I'm hopeful that enforcement will be at a minimal at a minimum, but uh, at the same token, the law, uh, the, the police officers have the tools they need to enforce it. Dan Kelly, uh, the curfew came into effect last night. You have written that provincial governments are, and I'm quoting you, doubling down on policies that aren't working. Do you think these curfews in Quebec, the curfew in Quebec, and the, the big lockdowns in other provinces like Ontario are the right path? You know, we're really starting to question whether lockdowns are, are really working. Uh, to, But we do know that they're absolutely killing thousands and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. Curfews may be a different story uh, in that they are focused really on consumers, people and, and their behavior in their homes, more than they are on, on what's happening in the business. But it seems like in most provinces, the only thing governments know what to do is to to shut down swaths and swaths of the business community, it doesn't seem to be having the effect that it did in the spring because consumers are not listening any longer and they're they're heading out of their homes or hosting people in their you know at their place, and and so the curfew may be a measure that actually starts to turn the tide. It's focused on what's happening in households more than it is what's and on what's happening in businesses. Joyce, the raw politics of these lockdowns, uh, these curfew in Quebec, lockdowns in again, like provinces like Ontario, what does it tell you that governments are having to resort to these harsh measures? Is this an indictment of their previous policies? Things just didn't work. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the short answer to your question, Evan, is yes, it, it is. I mean, listen, we know that contact tracing and testing was a failure. Uh, if that hadn't been a failure, we probably wouldn't be here today. But anyway, let's not look back, let's look forward. This is the first curfew in Canada, if I'm not mistaken. And even Dr. Horacio Haruda, who is the chief medical officer of Quebec, 
uh, is saying, look, we're not 100% sure that this works because we've never tried it. Other countries have tried it. It is successful. I don't want to be anti-business because fundamentally nobody should be anti-business because they are the job creators and the motor of our economy. But a, um, a curfew will allow businesses to operate. That's the beauty of a curfew. Just means that after 8 o'clock, um, you shouldn't be out on the street. You shouldn't go partying. Bars and restaurants will hate me for this, but people are not going. They're shutting down anyway. So why don't we try this? Because those numbers are very scary. People are dying. The ICUs are full. Hospitals are full. What other message do people need to hear to see that you've got to get medieval on, on, on people. This is a pandemic. So, you know, no, it's not comfortable. And no, but, it's no fun. Get over it. Mr. Skeet, I, I mean, a couple things. First of all, the optics of police arresting people for going out their business. I mean, your own government had to clarify that you could walk your dog a kilometer, but now you can even, you know, it's like a big favor. You can smoke a cigarette on your own porch or your balcony, but you won't be arrested. The line seems blurry. How, mm. you know, how, how do you, first of all, are you worried about enforcement and how the population is going to respond to that? I'm not worried about the enforcement because I trust our police officers mm. and, their, and their discretion. The idea here, Evan, it's very simple. It's this is an exceptional time. We live in exceptional moments, and we're asking everybody to reduce their contacts. Now, we've asked people in many different ways to, to reduce their contacts by limiting certain exercises, certain aspects of society, closing down gyms, closing down restaurants. And now we're at the point where we have to go a little bit further because we're still seeing an increase in community spread. We don't have a choice. This is about protecting our, our uh, hospital infrastructure, protecting our healthcare workers, and ultimately our seniors. So we don't have a choice, Evan. This is something that we have to do. I trust our police officers to do a good job. They've always done so in the past. Dan Kelly, Quebec's not the only place. Ontario's clearly looking at this model. Maybe other provinces are as well. Um, what would your position be if other provinces, by the way, it's not just a curfew, lockdown plus a curfew. Joyce talked about bars and restaurants. What's your reaction to that? Well, there are big worries for, for many businesses that will be affected by the curfew. Most of them won't be because, of course, they are doing business during the day to the extent that they're able to do any business at all. But you can imagine if you're trying to order dinner after the curfew kicks in, uh, how's that going to be affected by, by these new rules? We're really worried about the expanding measures on businesses. Uh, because the problem doesn't seem to be, the evidence isn't showing that it's retail shopping, even indoor dining that is causing COVID numbers to spike. It is personal activities in the home, but governments have been hesitant to take action against personal activities in the home. The curfew may be one of these measures that actually does work because it's actually focused on where the source of the problem happens to be. Christopher Skeet, though, Dan Kelly, Joyce Napier, these are heavy times uh, and scary times. I appreciate all, of, all three of you joining us, and, and that'll do it for us on Question Period this weekend. Thanks for watching. Try to stay safe. It is a scary time. I will see you tomorrow night on CTV's Power Play at 5 p.m. Eastern, and we will be back here for Question Period in seven short days. Take care.